Welcome to Econ Talk, Conversations for the Curious, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Shalem College in Jerusalem and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Go to econtalk.org where you can subscribe, comment on this episode, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives with every episode we've done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is May 16th, 2022, and my guest is author A.J. Jacobs. He was last here in November of 2018 talking about his book, Thanks a Thousand. His latest book is The Puzzler, One Man's Quest to Solve the Most Baffling Puzzles Ever, From Crosswords to Jigsaws to the Meaning of Life. A.J., welcome to Econ Talk. I am delighted to be back. Now, early in the book, you talk about crossword puzzles, which is a a puzzle a lot of us have had some access to. Do you do the New York Times puzzle every day? I do. I do. I'm a fan. Even Monday? Okay, you got me. I I, uh, liar, I don't liar. do Pants Monday and fire. Tuesday, yeah. Wednesday. Yeah, I, <laughs> I didn't want to sound pretentious <laughs> by saying it's too easy, but I, I do. <laughs> so you got me. I do Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. You know, I've always liked AJ, and now we have something even more powerful in common. When I had the New York Times crossword puzzle app on my phone, I also only did Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Uh, <laughs> now, I, ha- I, ha- I, ha- I know someone who on Sunday, and maybe on Saturday, does all the acrosses before Ooh. doing any of the downs. And, I like that. And, and I, I think maybe just sticks with that. I don't know if he views it as cheating to use the downs to help him. Do you ever do that? I've never done it, but I think that's, yeah, that's a great strategy. It's sort of like doing a jigsaw puzzle without looking at the box cover. Yeah, a little bit. Or using Google on a crossword puzzle, which I think you claim you do not do. Is that true? That claim is true, uh, unlike my previous one. I, uh, yeah, I... I don't consider it cheating. I am very open-minded, but I myself do not use it. In fact, I'm very strict with myself. I do it on the on my computer, but if it's a clue such as the uh, the key above caps lock on your keyboard and it's a three-letter word, I will not look down. I will force myself to keep looking at the screen. So I'm very proud of myself for that. I think you're a weirdo, but... I have my own, I have my own, this is, I'm going to make up a confession here right now. I'm a little ashamed of it, but I'm, uh, this is where I, I ask you, AJ, as well as anyone listening, don't tell anybody about this. It's a little personal. And I can't understand that actually when I, when I'm, when I confront it analytically, when I used to do the New York Times crossword puzzle on my phone and I would get a clue about something obscure uh, something I felt I was not, I should not be expected to know. I would look it up on Google. Interesting. But I wouldn't ask for a hint because you can cheat on the, you can quote cheat, you can get help on the app. Right. But I didn't want the app to know. <laughs> this is the embarrassing thing. It's, it, it, I can't explain this, but I didn't want the app to know that I had cheated. So I would just go to Google and do it and then it wouldn't know. Uh, of that course, is hilarious. It's a, little, it's a little weird. I can't. I can't fully explain it. Yeah, you're the weirdo. And by the way, if I could just back up for one yeah, second sure. and thank you. You know, I'm big, big into gratitude. Yeah. I want to thank you that you are partially responsible for this book because, uh, uh, as you know, we talk uh, occasionally outside of the show yep. about our projects, and I was working on a project about the epistemic crisis, about truth, and uh, the idea of sort of fact-checking my life. How do I know what I know? How do I know that the world is round? How do I know to trust the New York Times more than Newsmax? How do I know my wife loves me? She says she loves me. How do I know? And I still think it's a fascinating topic, but you uh, correctly said I was three months into it and I was miserable. And you said, AJ, I'm worried about you. This is this is possibly uh, taking off, more, biting off more than you can chew. And you were right. Uh, I was miserable. So uh, I, I pivoted and I said, what do I love? What's my passion? And it was puzzles. And I thought, 
why, why not spend two and a half years exploring what I love instead of being miserable? And I leave you to deal with the epistemic crisis in your book, <laughs> which is wonderful. So thank you for taking care of that. Well, my favorite line in your book, of course, is, is not your reference to me, which you kindly have one in there, but it's the line where you say, referring to some social science research about, say, the value of puzzles on reducing uh, illness or brain fatigue or helping you live longer or sleep better. You say, well, it's social science research that hasn't been replicated and has to be taken with a grain of salt. And I thought, this is a man who has listened to Econ talk at least once. So that, that, was, that was a comfort to me. Uh, Absolutely. Now, while we're on crossword puzzles for a minute, there's a, there's a chapter of the book on British crossword puzzles. And British crossword puzzles are what are called cryptics. They have these absurd wordplay, and they're American versions of them. They're, you can find them on the web. They're, they've been in a few magazines. And I always find them... Um, just past my often just past my sweet spot. In other words, they're a little too hard. They're more frustrating than than exhilarating when you get to the punchline. And I've always thought, you know, if I just put a little more time into it, I bet I could get good at them, and then I'd really love them. But I've never been able to to get to that level. And I'm curious where you are on cryptics, and I want any speculation you might have on why it's a British thing. It's it's because you don't you you make the observation in the book, but you don't spend much time talking about, maybe a sentence, about why American puzzles are more straightforward. Right. Well, I will say, uh, in defense of America, that we have uh, made our, our crosswords much more about wordplay and homophones and trickiness over the last 10 years. Uh, so we are sort of approaching the Brits in that. I... I am, and I don't mean to sound jingoistic, I like American cryptics better than British cryptics. British cryptics are over my head. They are, uh, they have incredibly obscure references that, uh, that just don't, uh, don't come to my mind. But I am, uh, I am a fan of American cryptics because I love the wordplay and I, I analyzed why do I like wordplay? Uh, because it is, you could say it's, it's a little silly. Uh, and puns are sometimes seen as the lowest form of humor. But I have a little uh, section in my book in defense of wordplay, in defense of puns. And I think that you would agree with me, maybe not, that what wordplay does is it helps train my mind to look at all of the different meanings of words. So if I see the word trunk, in a crossword puzzle, I, I say to myself, well, it could be the luggage trunk. It could be the trunk of an elephant. It could be the trunk of a torso. And what this does is it really sensitizes me to how slippery the English language is and how uh, words can be used. And I think I read the news differently because of this. I'm much more aware of some, a word like freedom or a word uh, like virtue. All these big words can be sliced and diced in a hundred different ways. Well, we like to say on the show that they're, that are what are someone called suitcase words, which is ironic given that you mentioned trunks. Uh, they're words <laughs> you can stuff lots of different things in, and what one person stuffs in there isn't the same as another person. And it really gets at this issue, which I think is um, I'm increasingly intrigued by, partly as a you know, a new immigrant to a country where I don't speak the language, but just in general, sensitizing myself to the fact that almost all language is a form of translation. And trunk is just the most obvious example. Uh, but when you start talking about freedom or virtue, you start to realize hmm, it's not just trunk. And it's not just ice or whatever is your, uh, your word that you realize has so many meanings. And then you come to a foreign language and you think, come on, it's so unfair. There's, they have they have two words that sound almost exactly like it. They mean nothing the same. And I'm thinking, not like English. Oh, just like English. Okay. Um, let's talk about um, jigsaw puzzles. Now, you, again, very similar, very similar attitude. I've always kind of looked down on jigsaw puzzles. You, I, I, you claim you've got a new respect for them. So explain. Yes, that is not a lie. I am a convert. <laughs> like you, I was a bit of a, a jigsaw snob. I saw them as a little broad and not too challenging. And I have made 180. I am a convert. And I'll give you the reasons why. First, uh, 
I believe they do provide a different uh, pleasure, which is a meditative pleasure. Mm-hmm. So you, I know you are, you're better at the, you go on these six day silent retreats. I've never done that. So jigsaws are sort of a replacement for me. They're very meditative. You, you get into the zone, you get into the flow state. Uh, I also think that uh, that's one advantage, but there are also jigsaws that are incredibly challenging, that don't put you in the meditative state, that are super tricky. I did some jigsaw puzzles that made me laugh out loud, which is bizarre. You're putting together a bunch of pieces and you chuckle, but these were woodcut jigsaw puzzles, these artisanal, it's a company called Stave, and they're super expensive. Bill Gates is a big fan because he can afford them. Uh, and, and they lent them to me because uh, I'm writing the book. And they are just so uh, unexpected. Edge, what looks like an edge piece is not an edge piece. There are pieces that don't belong in the puzzle it's, at all. There are holes in the middle of the puzzle. So I love that challenge. And, uh, and I also, uh, I have a little section on sort of life lessons that I learned from jigsaws. And one that I think you'll agree with is, When I interviewed one of these experts on jigsaws, and she said, when you are faced with that blue sky, that expanse of blue sky, and you want to throw up your hands, just remember that most puzzles, the sky is not all the same color. You've got different shades of blue. And so I took that as sort of a metaphor for life that nothing is black and white. Nothing is all blue. Some are, you've got different shades. So uh, the, the idea of nuance and shades of gray, everything is gray. Very few things are black and white. And one of the fun things about your books is that, uh, actually, you know, I think you would have written this book even if it wouldn't sell and didn't turn out well, just so you get a lot of free puzzles and be able to talk to puzzle makers, <laughs> which is a really good gig if you, can, if you can get it. But at one point you entered, either out of genuine curiosity or for the writing of the book, a jigsaw competition which most of us would be surprised to learn exist, where you were a one of the four representatives of the United States in a world jigsaw competition, which isn't quite the full story, is it? Right. Well, I love this <laughs> because part of the book are adventures I go on around the world to meet some of these great eccentric puzzlers. Part is the history and psychology of puzzles and part is puzzles itself. I have hundreds of puzzles, uh, old and original Uh, But yes, I was researching puzzles and I did a Google search and it came out um, uh, that uh, there was a World Jigsaw Puzzle Championship. And like you, I did not know it existed, but it was fascinating because there were 40 countries signed up, uh, New Zealand, Mexico, you name it, no, no USA. So I thought... On a whim, I would fill out the application and uh, represent. I, I would be weeded out, of course. But the next day, I get an email: <laughs> "Welcome, you! Congratulations, you are Team USA in the World Jigsaw Puzzle Championship." So I am thrilled and terrified uh, because I'm not a great jigsaw puzzler. But I recruited my family, my wife, and two of my sons, teenage sons, and we went to Spain and we competed. And we were an embarrassment to our country. We were, I, uh, I apologize to all Americans on behalf of me because uh, we came in second to last, not last. So that's something. Uh, but, uh, but I will say it was a joy to see people at the height of their skill. Just even if you think this skill is, is kind of silly to see the LeBron James of any, uh, any, any pastime, any endeavor, to see someone at the height of their talent, I think is a wonderful and fascinating uh, endeavor. And one of the few moments of economics that may slip into this conversation, there may be more, but but one of them is that the winning team, which I, if I remember correctly, was a Russian team, uh, they used the divisional labor. They did not just have four people around a table looking for a match. What did they do? Oh, yeah, they absolutely not like uh, the Jacobs I mean, had, team, unfortunately, representing unfortunately. the United States of America. But OK, whatever. What did the Russian team do? <laughs> right. They divided uh, the labor. So they had one person who was uh, sorting colors, another person who was sorting edges. Uh, but they had one person who was an expert in the monochromatic expanses, the sky, um, etc. And and what's interesting is uh, I think it, 
with like with every endeavor, they there are different strategies and uh that I didn't know about. So when you're faced with something, you can you can sort by color or you can sort by shape. So a lot of these people at the height of the the jigsaw uh, ladder, they will they will create a line of here are uh, here are pieces with two outies and two innies. Here are pieces with three outies and one innie, and and that makes it go faster. So there's always strategies that uh, that you that you don't expect. Don't always go with the default strategy was a takeaway. Yeah, I'm going to try something a little bit crazy. You did not discuss this in the book, but but you touch on it in various places in different ways. So this was a competition. And you might think, well, 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 well you know, what, what, competing at what? Everybody, almost everyone finished. They gave you four puzzles. They were all the same. It's a little bit like contract bridge. And that should level the playing field in theory. Of course, not everyone would Realized that you should specialize, but okay. That's the way it turned out. Uh, and you finished 85th out of 86, but that's, you know, that's, that's what happens. But you could argue that there's something kind of, you just gave me this beautiful meditative, zen thing about puzzles and jigsaws. And here all of a sudden you're in this world where it's time, time, time. Come on, come on, get it, get it quick, hurry, hurry, hurry. And you've taken this contemplative art. And you turned it into a little bit of a of a of a, of a sport. In fact, you could argue it should have been a contact sport. You could come over and you know distract the other teams. You could devote one of your team members to you know confusing them. But but anyway, my point is that you could have an idea of starting a jigsaw puzzle from the center. Most people start on the edges because it's a little bit easier. But say you just want to start from the center and let it blossom out into toward the edges and and fill out that that image. You might, as you said earlier, you might not even know what it's going to turn into. And yet, all of a sudden, you've taken this beautiful contemplative thing and turned it into this frantic, stress-filled thing of timing. What do you think about that? Well, I think there are. Puzzles contain multitudes, so there are different ways to enjoy puzzles as there are ways to enjoy life. So there is the, as you say, the meditative joy. Uh, and but I do think there is something fun to competition, and you know, capitalism is uh, is based on competition. To throw in a little economics, so I uh, I think uh, you can enjoy both. They're not mutually exclusive. Uh, I went to the American Crossword Puzzle Tournament a couple of months ago, and again, I I did not do spectacularly. I did okay, but uh, my excuse was I I'm a saverer. I like to savor the crossword puzzles. Uh, I and I prefer that to the speed. I mean, just watching some of these people fill in the crossword puzzle like they're filling in a form with their name and birth date is just astounding. It's it's amazing, and speed and efficiency are interesting to me, but also savor. So I think they, they can coexist. Yeah, if you've ever seen a speed chess, a serious world-class speed chess player, it's extraordinary. I mean, it looks, um, it's a different thing. It's just a totally different experience. Um, uh, let's talk about Rubik's Cube, which um, has a lot of interesting things in it. Um, I have never gotten the idea of it. I've never seen the appeal of it. Um, but I'm clearly in a minority. I think you said there are 450 million have been sold in all kinds of different variations. And um, the world record is under four seconds. I, that blows my mind. Is that really possible? Have you seen that? Is that like that sounds like the like a lie, an absurd, like a sham, a hoax? Come on. Four it seconds? is crazy. It is. I think it's four and a half seconds. So not under. Uh, no, but it is. Yeah, it's crazy. And the, the, it was a teenager because I think their minds and fingers work faster. But it is astounding. It is just, and it is on YouTube. You can watch them. And and just the people doing it blindfolded, underwater, you name it. It is a fascinating phenomenon. It was again not my favorite type of puzzle, but I did learn to respect it. And I start that chapter by talking about uh, something that I, I know that you're interested in, the fact that a Rubik's Cube has 43 quintillion different combinations and only one correct uh, arrangement. So that is just an astounding number. And I think it's important for a couple of reasons. One, 
I love being reminded of huge numbers because our brains are not evolved to grapple with huge numbers, a number more than the grains of sand in the universe. I mean, in the, on earth, this, this Rubik's cube, but we need to start grappling with big numbers because uh, they have effect on our lives. Uh, the pandemic, I think we didn't understand how exponentially fast it could grow. So I love the idea of 43 quintillion combinations. And I love the idea that some kid can t- take that and in four, three and a half seconds solve it out of all like the, the smallest needle in the biggest haystack they're able to find that solution. So it's, it, it's inspiring. It's optimistic. It makes me think there are sometimes solutions. As we know, not always, no, but there are no. sometimes. But, but if I, let's say I bought a Rubik's Cube, and I, a brand new one, and I spent a week just fiddling with it, no, not, even, not attempting to solve it, and I gave it to that kid, can he solve it in four seconds from wherever, whatever position it starts in? Oh, yeah. I mean, these speed cubing competitions, which are hilarious. Uh, I mean, they are like a sport. So they have, you know, their equipment and they have their uh, grease, their, their special <laughs> grease that helps uh, and magnets inside the cube. Uh, but yeah, you can, they're totally randomized when they're given to these kids and then they solve it. So yeah, he could absolutely do it. And it was invented by, strangely enough, a Hungarian architecture professor named Rubik, who it took one month to solve. And, and it's interesting because you talk to these uh, OGs, the original Rubik's Cube solvers, and, uh, and they, are, they are actually skeptical of the new kids. And this gets into something That's you're crazy. interested in, <laughs> algorithms. Because originally, you had to figure it out yourself. You were like an explorer, a scientist. You had to come up with a solution. Now you can go on YouTube, and there are these hundreds of algorithms. So it's more uh, about memorizing and figuring out the, the right algorithm. But it's all presented there like a recipe. So that has its pros and cons, as you know. But the, the first person who did it, uh, of the first, uh, let's take the first thousand people who bought one. And there are no YouTube. They had no idea what they're doing. They, they fiddled around they found, and they got, they got it to come out after some enormous amount of time, like a month or more probably. Could they do it a second time? Did they look, quote, learn anything? Did they have to take notes? How does that work? Yeah. Well, I talked to one of the original, the guy who, uh, who holds the world record for the first world record, which was... <coughs> Something like, you know, 45 seconds, which is nothing <laughs> compared to now. the end of that is years. But he, uh, he was very meticulous in writing down the uh, algorithms and the formula. So he was able to replicate it. And what's interesting is, and I think uh, I want to talk to you about this, because he sees the whole world as a Rubik's Cube. Everything has an algorithm, whether it's love uh, or work. Uh, everything can be broken down into little parts. Uh, and he actually did apply that t- to his current job, which is pizza maker. He owns a chain of pizzerias in Atlanta, and he spent years perfecting the algorithm for the perfect pizza, So, which is hilarious. And he said it was the result of he had to buy 200 types of oregano and try them all. Uh, he blew up several ovens doing it. So it was all. So I applaud the experimentation. And I, in a sense, I love that. Uh, but as you point out in your upcoming delightful book, uh, how much of life can be solved by algorithms and how much cannot. And it is, uh, it is something I think about a lot. So how much is the Rubik's Cube a good metaphor for life? Yeah, and I use I mentioned it in passing in my new book because I got that from you. I, I'm going to I'm going to um, well, I, I salute the pizza maker. Although I would suggest he is probably a little um, weak on what we would call in economics interaction effects. So trying 200 types of oregano seriatim in a row and finding which one's the best with the other stuff held constant. We'll give you one answer versus if you, you know, there's a lot of combinations. He does, the universe probably doesn't have enough life left in it or ever to try all the combinations of pizza, cheese, oven, etc. which is really, the, to me, what's interesting about the Rubik's Cube, which is that 43 quintillion. Now I'm going to pick on you a little bit, AJ. 
and, and to I'm bring ready. to bring out a, an econ talk point, you're gonna. I think you're gonna get a kick out of. It's forty three quintillion possibilities, which is forty three with I think eighteen zeros. Is that right? I that think that's right. right. I think it's eighteen. Uh, see, in my book, not my book we're talking about. I meant in this the metaphorical book. In my view of the world, the the number of stars in the universe is approximately equal to the number of grains of sand. And that's 10 to the 22nd. Now, what's funny about that, the reason this is such an absurd and delightful example, is it's not an answerable question, even remote, either of them. The Rubik's Cube is an answerable question, I think. I think there's an actual number, but we have no idea precisely how many grains of sand there are on the Earth, and we have no idea precisely how many stars there are in the heavens. It's a, It's an estimate, right? And it's somewhat... It's got some issues because what's a grain of sand and what do you call a beach and does that include my backyard? It's a little sandy. and But usually the way they, they make some crude back-of-the-envelope calculation and they get to 10 to the 22nd. So it turns out Rubik's Cube isn't even close. But that's okay. I, I take it as hyperbole. I'm going to cut you slack on this one. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, I actually did have a fact checker on the book. So it is, I'm, I'm guessing, yes. So he, uh, so I think I may in the book not have used the grains of sand. Uh, I don't think you did. I, I think have, you got sloppy uh, here on the program. <laughs> okay, there you go. See, I thank you for being my fact checker on the program. I know I used, uh, I used something to try to convey Uh yeah, I mean, I I do enjoy the uh, the challenge of trying to convey huge numbers. What yeah. metaphors can we use? Uh, so I used the wrong one. <laughs> no, you did. <laughs> it's all definitely in the ballpark. <laughs> um, I want to ask one more question about jigsaws before we leave. Uh, as we as we know, a bad jigsaw puzzle person or a person on the verge of a of a breakdown can push two pieces together that don't really go together. And you point out in the book, the way to find out if you've done that, and if you've forced something that doesn't really go, is to, is to hold it up to the light and see if there's any gap, any glint um, from from the light passing through the the imperfect mesh, meshing of the pieces. But how do they cut those pieces? How do you cut a puzzle? Like you could, I could understand, hey, cut a puzzle where every piece is the same shape. That would be a really unpleasant or some would find it exhilarating, but that that's a very, most puzzles aren't like that. You say there's two innies, three outies, but even the two innies, three outies in a jigsaw puzzle, they're all different. How do they do that? Well, yeah, it is fascinating. They have uh, people who design the puzzles, but they make sure that no, no piece is the same as any other piece. And uh, they have, uh, and then they create sort of a, a massive cookie cutter and they slam it down on the cardboard, uh, but they uh, they mat they test them. So it's a lot. I mean, that is someone's job, not just one person, but many people at these big companies. Their whole job is to test the. So they play with jigsaws at, all day long, trying to find if there are two pieces that are exactly alike, and uh, and. If there is, then they redesign it. But it is, yeah, it's a fascinating uh, uh, industry. But if I'm a jigsaw, let's say I'm a, a jigsaw puzzle company, and I'm going to have a scene of the Rockies, and I'm going to have a scene of great monuments in cities, and I'm going to have one that's a ocean, lakeshore scene, etc. Do they use the same thing dropping down on the image each time so in other words yes it's true that within a puzzle all the pieces are different but are all their puzzles roughly then the same shapes just different pictures on them not all they have several different stencils that they use but it is funny because sometimes they'll use the same uh, stencil for totally different pictures which has created a little cottage industry of artists who combine the puzzles and i have in my book a picture of a uh he calls his work of art the iron horse oh, right. because the back half is a horse and the front half is a train because they use the exact same uh stencil uh, which is part of what i love about puzzles is the creativity that it inspires in uh in 
puzzle lovers. So, and you see this in Wordle. Like uh, that's one of my favorite things about Wordle: the thousands of Wordle spinoffs, the the Yiddish, yeah, the Loodle, where they have naughty words. Wordle, Wordle, uh, right? Forward uh, to the time. I'm a Wordle guy. Are you? Yeah, I do Wordle almost every day. It's a little weird. It's a compulsion. You know, you talk about this in the book a lot. A lot of our puzzle doing is compulsive. It's a need to get to an answer, and along the way, a little bit of suffering redeemed by a little bit of comfort at the end, right? Exactly. And actually, one of my favorite uh, descriptions of puzzles was by this uh, Japanese puzzle maker, Maki Kaji. And he's called the godfather of Sudoku because he popularized Sudoku. And he describes it in three symbols. Uh, so it's the question mark, the, the forward arrow, and the exclamation point. So that represents all the puzzle. That is the bafflement. The forward arrow is the struggle, the, the trying different strategies. And then the exclamation point is the solution. Yes, the, the aha moment. Now, what I love about him uh, which is very zen, uh, is that he says the key to puzzles and the key to life is to embrace that forward arrow because you may never get to the exclamation point. You've got to enjoy the struggle. You've got to love the uh, the testing out, the failure and the uh, the exploration. So that that was a nice takeaway, I think, from my year is that it can't all be about the exclamation point because you may never get there. Yeah, I, I'm gonna get. Let's get philosophical for a minute. I, I think, and you talk about this quite a bit in the book. You know, I think for a lot of people, puzzle making is a is a haven. It's a solace. It's a place where there's that exclamation point waiting, and you don't have to deal with the. It, it's, most of life, it's question mark, forward arrow, question mark, or <laughs> question mark, forward <laughs> arrow, question mark, exclamation point, at sign. You know, like. Come on. And I, I find this fascinating because, you know, you and I have talked about this off the air. I, I'm very interested in our demand, our need for certainty. And puzzles fulfill that in, in a very powerful way. And I think, I don't know if you want to, you know, share any of this, share any of your personal experience talking to all these people. Many of them are eccentric. And, you know, they, it comes through kind of dramatically in the book. Uh, they're not, quote, just like most people. And I think it draws a certain kind of person, and we all have a little of this, most of us have some of this in us in various amounts, a need for that certainty. And the um, the answer, and you have a couple examples where you know, there's very rarely, but occasionally there's a typo or there's a, a brain teaser that deliberately didn't have an answer, like, you know, kind of like a Hegel lecture when he was professor, I'm told. You know, those kind of things don't, aren't, that's not just like, oh, that's fun. You know, it didn't have an answer or it didn't quite all fit together. Like that drives people insane, literally sometimes. Oh, yeah. it, it, it's, it's a cruel, it's a form of cruelty. And, and so talk about that. Yeah. Well, one of my, my favorite <laughs> puzzles was uh, in the Baltimore Sun last year, and it was a spot the difference puzzle where you have two images and you have to spot the difference. And there was a boy brushing his teeth, said spot 10 differences between these two pictures. The next day they had to print a correction Deeply apologetic. We are so sorry. These two images were actually identical. And it just broke my heart, the hundreds of hours of people looking for these differences. Uh, and again, you can say that that had its upside because you have to get used to frustration. That's a big life lesson. But yes, I, I think the need for closure and certainty is dangerous, as you know. That was sort of the thesis of my book that uh, I abandoned and that I'm I'm hoping your book uh, answers. Uh, but uh, I think that if you really get into puzzles, then you do learn that it's okay not to, to solve everything. And, and the book ends with a, a puzzle that cannot be solved that I co-created, a mechanical puzzle that is, uh, that is so complicated, it will take until the end of the universe to solve. And uh, I love that as a metaphor because it is about embracing the journey as opposed to, but I do think, yes, the, the danger of puzzles is that you will think that everything has a black and white answer in life, which it doesn't. Yeah. 
But I view it as, I mean, I, you go back and forth on this in the book, obviously. You can make a case for either side. But, you know, for me, it's it, it's just this haven idea. It's a form of solace. It's here's a place where I know things are going to, you know, are going to turn out okay. And I find it very difficult to walk away from, you know, an unfinished puzzle in that way. Uh, when I think about, um, like, you have the spelling bee. The spelling bee is a... As you point out, somewhat cruel New York Times puzzle of seven letters arranged in a the shape of kind of a beehive with one letter in the middle, and you have to come up with as many words as possible in in the in the uh, for making using those seven letters. And same thing happened to me that happened to you. You know, at one point, if you're doing it on your phone, uh, as opposed to the Sunday version in print, if you're doing it on your phone, at some point you you find enough words that you get a genius rating. And I had a friend who said, um, yeah, it's so hard to get, you know, to, to, to get all the words. And the first time I, or second time I found out about that there was this app for it, I thought, oh boy, I felt sorry for my friend. It's not hard at all. I got to genius every, every day for a week. And then I learned that genius is not all the words. And in fact, I never got all the words. <laughs> And that was really hard for me. I don't like, I find that very difficult because knowing that there are words that I could not find, I have a little trouble with that forward arrow. I have to confess, AJ. It's not easy for me. Right. Well, yes. The queen, there's in the spelling bee, if you get all of the possible words, then you get queen bee. And I had to really resist the temptation to get queen bee. And it is, uh, I think it's a good exercise in uh, in restraint uh, but it is funny because throughout puzzles history, there's been this tension between is this an amazing tool for sharpening people's minds and teaching them how to think, or is it a vice? I mean, it, the hilarious part is crosswords were invented in 1913 in the New York world, the yellow journalism paper, and they became a phenomenon. Uh, people were obsessed with them, but one paper refused to print them. The New York Times. They thought they were a waste of time. They were very. They were. They called them a pestilence. I believe they were. Um, if you look at the article, the coverage in the twenties and thirties of the New York Times covering crossword puzzles, you'll think it was like the crack cocaine of the day. They talk about people being murdered over crossword puzzles, divorces, uh, eyesight. This is all true. I, it, it, it hurts our eyesight and. Uh, prison riots, literally. Uh, so it is hilarious. And if, in 1942, during World War II, they decided to uh, do it because people needed a distraction. And then, of course, they became the paragon of puzzles. And now, when you think of puzzles, the New York Times is sort of the the, the top shelf. But I love this tension between, uh, and it happens with every puzzle, and of course it happens with everything. When the novel first came out, oh my God, we're gonna. When, when writing first came out, oh, we're gonna have no memory. So uh, it is a fascinating tension. And we recently had um, Ann Leslie on the program talking about his book Curious, and uh, I realized AJ when I was reading your book, I've read I think two of your, two of your other books. Uh, your trademark is curiosity. You take a topic that you know a little bit about, and then you learn a lot about it. Um, and it's a beautiful thing. It, it makes for a, a really great read. Obviously, you're an incredibly funny person. You have an extraordinarily um, excellent sense, sense of humor. But what's interesting, and we've sort of touched on this in our conversation so far, is that Ian Leslie makes a distinction and you do too as well in your book, between a puzzle and a mystery. And we've mm. been talking about puzzles that are hard to solve, but a mystery is a little different. A mystery is a puzzle that often can't be solved. And I think maybe people differ in their character, their personality, and how they approach these different challenges. I think for some people, they like mysteries. It's okay. They're okay with the fact that it can't be solved. And puzzles are weird. They're just not they're too easy or they're too pat. And for other people, I think puzzles are a source of comfort and mysteries are, they're creepy and macabre and sinister and awful. And they want to live in a different kind of world. Do you think that's an interesting distinction between people? Yeah, I like that a lot. And I think my hope is that uh, 
is that I, I'm fluid between mystery and puzzles. That I, I think uh, it, it's nice to embrace both, to love to look for solutions when there are solutions, uh, because we need that. We need much more of a solution-oriented mindset when we are faced with social problems, but also to acknowledge that there are problems that maybe don't have a solution and to embrace that and to live with that uncertainty. So to, uh, to have those two sides of our mind and, uh, and embrace them. I also love, by the way, you know, curiosity, since you bring it up, I mean, that's part of why I love your show is conversations for the curious. And I think my two favorite human emotions are gratitude and curiosity. Uh, and this book is a bit of an uh, ode to the power of curiosity. Uh, and I talk about in my book, uh, I heard a phrase uh, from a child psychologist when I was in the middle of the pandemic. I went to a, a webinar by a child psychologist and, and he said, when dealing with the frustration of kids during the pandemic, don't get furious, get curious. So when they throw a tantrum, don't be angry. Try to ask questions. Why are they throwing the tantrum? What can we do to change it in the future? Uh, and I loved that little phrase. Uh, you know, it rhymes. Uh, not that that makes it true, but it is, it's catchy. And I thought, why just apply it to a child psychology? I think you can apply it to a wide variety of of puzzles in life. Don't get curious. And when I am talking to someone from the other side of the political spectrum, I could see it in two different lenses. I could see it as a war of words, and I'm going to try to uh, beat them over the head with my facts. And, and that rarely results in anything productive. Uh, in fact, it's probably counterproductive. Or I could treat it as a puzzle. Uh, why do they believe what they believe? Why do I believe what I believe? Is there any evidence that can change it? Maybe not. Maybe. Uh, where do we go from here? What can we, how do we move forward? Uh, is, there, um, is there any common ground that we can agree on? So I find that a sanity-saving strategy because uh, it's so easy to get furious, and especially now with so many people with, you know, their entrenched positions and, uh, and, the only way that I've retained my sanity is to be able to treat the world as a puzzle and, uh, and try to figure out solutions. And sometimes it's a mystery and there are no solutions, but it's worth trying. Well, the economist in me likes to say no solutions, only trade-offs. But the point you're making, which I think is, 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 really, um, is really beautiful, is that something that's different, whether it's someone who disagrees with you or something you see out in the world that seems to be a break from the patterns you've seen in the past is an educational opportunity, not a chance to get angry. And I think um, that's hard for us. Uh, you know, we live in, you know, in very tribal times. But I really love that. Don't get furious, get curious. Um, or more furious, less more, more curious, less furious is another way you say it. It reminds me of my favorite bumper sticker, um, Wag more, bark less. Um, it's the same, roughly the same idea. What, what was fun for me in reading that is that you know you have two spelling bees, these these hive-like patterns of seven letters. One of them I got pretty quickly because this thing we didn't talk about. It's not just the number of of words you can create out of the pattern, out of the seven letters. It's also a word of at least seven letters that can be made, and sometimes more than one. Uh, that you excuse me, that use all you know, that use all seven. And you have two you happen to put in there. One of them, I got, yeah, I got within, I don't know, 30 seconds. The other one, I'm not sure I have it. We'll talk off the air later. I don't want to spoil it. I have a word. I'm very dissatisfied with it. You know, it's like, are you kidding me? Is that really their seven-letter word? I'm hoping they won't take that. But if that's true, I, I don't have it yet. And it, that, you know, it, that's a uh, irksome thing. I don't get furious about it. But you talk about puzzles that are so maddening that, that, that they make you furious. My grandfather, who did not finish high school, I'm not sure he went to high school. I think he dropped out in the sixth grade. He liked to do the New York Times crossword puzzle, but he would curse at, at the puzzle. And you have moments like that in your book where 
you know, out of frustration, you know, because it's, you know, an obscure river in Latvia that is like A-A-S-A, you know, some, the poor crossword puzzle constructor was stuck and then <laughs> tried to find a, a, a clue that would fit it. And my grandmother would, would curse him out. He, he would call them bad names. And uh, I think that too was a source of satisfaction for him. But uh, that's, uh, you're, you're counseling a different approach. Right. And I definitely have gotten very angry many times during this two and a half years of puzzles. I've, I've thrown these Rubik's Cube-like puzzles across the room. I've cursed and I've uh, you know, rent my clothing. But I do think that is counterproductive to solving any problems. I think, and we are both skeptical of unreplicated social science research. So I say this with with caution, but I have read studies that uh, that it, you are uh, worse at solving puzzles and problems when you are angry. It gives you tunnel vision. A lot of the uh, best thinking and solutions and uh, ideas are when we uh, are able to make leaps between wildly different topics uh, and and put them together. And that's very hard, I think, when you're angry. Uh, and I don't want to get into pop neuropsychology, but it does seem that uh, you are most creative when you are not angry, when you are in a good mood and you're able to make these cognitive leaps. Uh, so that is... Uh, yeah, that's why I try not to. It's hard. I try not to get angry. Now, I've made the argument on the program, and everybody agrees with me, that anger is never a good emotion unless you're in physical danger. If you're in physical danger, anger could save your life. Uh, it's not a bad thing. But outside of that, I think it's, it's, it's a mistake. Passion, different thing. Passion is good. Being, you know, feeling strongly about certain things or caring deeply about certain things or being deeply curious about certain things. But anger, where basically to me, what anger means is I am cutting loose. I am, I, I'm going to ignore uh, my conscious mind and let my visceral responses um, take over. And again, if your life's in danger, that's could save your life. Other than that, I think it's a mistake. Where do you, where do you stand on that? I am, I am in your camp and I know that we are the minority. Uh, and I'm sure anger, like everything, it's got its pros and cons. It can be extremely effective in social change. Like a lot of these, the recent uh, social movements have been anger-based and outrage-based, and they have made change. And so that maybe that's good. I'm, I want to be uh, epistemically humble and say that it does have. But I also worry that these uh, changes, since they're based on outrage, just generate more outrage from the other side and that it's just going to continue to spiral. And instead of creating a, a, a lasting solution, it's going to have uh, some long-term problems. So my, I find that curiosity is a better spark for me uh, than anger. So, uh, you know, even when seeing something huge, that's a huge uh, anger-inducing, possibly anger-inducing problem, uh, I, I, do, I do try to avoid it because I just think that in the long run, uh, anger is not going to help the world. Yeah, I happen to agree with you, but I appreciate the epistemic humility. Um, as <laughs> yeah, you know, I would. As you, we could be wrong about being wrong. Um, I want to talk about chess for a minute. So you, one of the chapters in the book, uh, maybe more than one, but you, you a few you have a few chapters on chess problems, which are things like mate in three or mate in one, or um, you know what's your best move in this in this uh, in this situation. You know, I play as I've confessed on the program before. I play, I play a reasonably large amount of chess on my phone at chess.com, which is an incredible app. I just think it's an incredible achievement. Uh, by the way, I think I'm playing against other human beings. It's really entertaining. I've no, there's no way of knowing if that's true, and I have right. and I have this sneaky suspicion that Chess.com, since they know all my openings, they have a full record of of all my opening moves. They occasionally match me with people who are really easy for me to win against because they know that their opening moves are not very good, and so my score starts to rise and I get all excited, and then they go, "Okay, we'll show them." And then they match me against people, my moves, they, who know all my moves. And, 
I also wonder whether these social trends that this particular opening, people start to get the hang of it and it spreads. They realize they need to defeat it. And anyway, it's a very interesting thing. I, I don't know if anyone's looked at it with any systematic way. But what fascinates me about it is an insight into myself. I don't think it's made me smarter. I don't think it makes me better looking ahead or uh, thinking more clearly. It has allowed me to apply more chess metaphors to things I've been doing. And I really don't know <laughs> if that's helpful, but, but it's interesting. But what I find utterly fascinating about it, if I'm having a tough day, I've got a lot going on and my head's a little swirling or I've got a lot of decisions to make or things haven't been going well. And I think I need an escape. I'm going to play some chess. And I start playing. And after about five moves in, I give away my queen. <laughs> and so I say, well, that's horrible. I gave away my queen. That was such a bad move. I'll do it again. I play again. And what I find is that chess dot Playing chess online, presumably against other human beings, is instead of teaching me something about how to make decisions or look ahead, it teaches me about my current mental state. One of my sons who plays says, you know, if you lose two in a row or three in a row, you should probably stop playing because you're just not in the right place. And I find myself often, I know that, so he's right, but I keep playing often and I'll play I'll lose seven, eight in a row, again, with horrible moves where I've given away the game, not, you know, unforced errors. And then I'll get in a moment of focus and clarity, and I, I can win seven or eight in a row. And I think, I've mastered this. I, 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 this is easy. And then back they go. But I think that's them jerking me around. I'm worried about that. But anyway, what are your thoughts on chess? That is fascinating. I mean, uh, uh, it's interesting because there has, is a long history of people using chess as a metaphor for life. Ben Franklin wrote about the virtues of chess, and, and one of them is long-term thinking and, uh, and not giving up when you are in a, uh, in, a, in a losing position. And Gary Kasparov, who I interviewed for the book, who was delightful and hilarious uh, and a little condescending, uh, but... <laughs> <laughs> about, about your chess set. He said you have a cheap chess set. <laughs> yes, he was not impressed, which is true. He said it was a little plastic thing I got off Amazon. And he's like, you can't afford a better chess set. I'm sorry, Gary. But uh, yeah, he wrote a whole book on chess as a, a way to think about life and how uh, it's a lot about what you talk about on the show, about pros and cons and uh, everything. There's no solution. There's just uh, you know, uh, benefits, trade-offs, yeah. trade-offs. Uh, so it is interesting, uh, that's, that some people see it. I love what you say about it being a window into your current mood, because I have noticed this in other, uh, types of puzzles. One of the clearest proofs that multitasking does not work. The clearest proofs for me is that I will be doing a hard crossword puzzle with the TV in the background and I think, you know, it's not really bothering me. I'm okay. I can do this. And I'll struggle and struggle. The moment the TV turns off, I'm able to whip through the crossword puzzle. It is fascinating. It's such a clear and few things are black and white. Russ, as you know, but this was a black and white cool. uh, proof that multitasking does dampen your cognitive ability. Well, you might want to get a few more data points. Could just be a, a coincidence, but I suspect you've seen that <laughs> phenomenon in action. With me, I'll be playing chess on my bus ride home. And my bus ride home, when I'm taking the bus, about nine minutes, and I've got, I play a six-minute chess game, three minutes for each player. So, you know, I'm playing along, and I'm kind of keeping an eye on the when my stop's coming. I play horribly on the bus. I mean, if I get a win on the bus, it's an enormous triumph. Because even though, I, you know, my opening is pretty standard each time, I kind of, oh, I know what I'm doing. You're right. When, when I'm distracted in the slightest amount, my game goes down badly. It's fascinating, actually. Right. It really is, yeah. I mean, focus is, is huge. Can we talk about Gary Kasparov? Oh, sure. So Gary Kasparov is famous for a lot of things. He's a, he's a, he has a lot to say about the world. He's, uh, he's been an important voice for human rights. Uh, and he's, you could argue, most famously, the, the man who lost to IBM's Big Blue the first time, right? He's the first person, I think, first grandmaster to lose yeah. to, a, to a computer. He, like Tyler Cowen on this program, argues 
in your book that human beings plus machines are the way to go. They're not going to replace us, which is comforting. He's a very smart man. Should make you feel a little bit better. But what I'm really <laughs> curious about is how'd you get him to come to your house? Now, you don't have, if you don't want to talk about it, we'll let it all out. But to get Gary Kasparov to come to your house, that's pretty cool. I mean, it's one thing to say, hey, uh, Gary, uh, I'm writing a book. Could you come by? I mean, I, I'm a horrible chess player, but I really appreciate it. Anything oh, interesting? Yeah, no, anything I'm- interesting there? And how long did you spend with the man? Well, I yes, I will. Uh, I will tell you that. Um, let me just say though, I loved when he said when we, I was asking him about the dangers of of AI, and he said, "Listen, I am the first knowledge worker who was uh, whose job was threatened by AI," yeah, right. which I thought was a great way to look at it. Yeah. And he says, "I'm not worried. I think we can work together." So, as you say, that made me feel a bit better. Uh, well, it was funny because I emailed him very early on in the research of my book and I never heard back. So then I emailed him one more time. I thought that wasn't rude and I didn't hear back again. And um, and then finally, months later, he said, uh, hi, this is Gary. I'm willing to come over. Uh, there were a couple of things. I don't know how interesting they are that helped. One is we have a mutual friend uh, and I had met him uh, at this friend's uh podcast and a guy named James Altucher, who's very into uh, chess. And uh, and also I happened to be uh, that CBS Sunday morning was following me around and they wanted to film my chess lesson with Gary. So, uh, you know, I may just be a writer, but if you throw in CBS Sunday morning, then that helps. That's so cool. Uh, I, I will encourage listeners, we'll try to put a link up to this. There is a, uh, a clip of Bobby Fischer from the Dick Cavett show. Dick Cavett was a was a talk show host in the 70s, I think. Can't even remember mm-hmm. now. I used to love to watch him. And uh, that Bobby Fischer clip is amazing. And it, by the way, he talks about this focus thing that, you know, it is a chess is a, at the highest level is clearly an, a sport of unbelievable stamina. Uh, physically and mentally to stay focused for that length of time. You can't just say, oh, I'll, I'll just make a move that looks pretty good right now, and then you lose. Um, you know that clip or some of those clips yeah. of him on the Cavett Show? It's amazing. I, well, I think I'm thinking of a different clip. Tell me about yours, and then I'll tell you the one I have. There's a, there's a bunch of fun things about it. One is Bobby Fischer trying to appear somewhat modest, which does not come easily to him. Uh, this is before I think he went into some very strange places, but uh, at one point, and, you know, you could assume that this was set up, but I don't think it was, you know, Cabot asked him some question, and, and of course, Bobby Fischer recreates from memory a famous position either from his match, it was his match against, um, what's his name, um, Spassky, Boris Spassky, and for those of you who weren't those of you who are young, I think it was 1972 or so. I was 18. It was very vivid for me. Uh, it was the only time in my life until the Queen's Gambit, the miniseries, where chess was like glamorous. And PBS broadcast this chess match as if it was the World Cup. And, of course, it was the World Cup for chess, but most people don't care about chess. But this ignited a lot of interest in chess. And so at some point in the Cavett conversation, Cavett says um, – in that game, what did you do? Oh, I think it looked like this. And he blah, 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 lays all the pieces out, shows the moves, shows why he did what he did. It's a really beautiful little, um, beautiful little lesson. That's that's my clip. I love that. And my clip, uh, I was thinking he went on Johnny Carson's uh, Tonight Show, and oh, because yeah, do you I, know what I'm talking no, about? No, but I've, go ahead. Sorry. Well, there's another puzzle uh, called the 15 puzzle, and you've probably seen it. It's the little square with tiles, and there are 16 spaces, but 15 tiles, and you have to rearrange it so that it, it goes sequentially 1 to 15. And this was actually a huge, this was the Rubik's Cube of the 1880s. <laughs> it was enormous. People went nuts. And again, the New York Times uh, wrote outraged editorials about it. Uh, but anyway, uh, uh, Bobby Fischer claimed that he was the best uh, 15 solver in the world, the fastest, and he went on Johnny Carson to prove it. So that is another fascinating Bobby <laughs> Fischer clip. <laughs> Complicated man. Um, but anyway, chess is, is, a, is, a, is a pretty – it's a cool thing. And you're not a chess aficionado. If you had to pick your favorite type of puzzle, if I said to you – uh, I guess two different questions. 
you're going to be on a desert island. You can only have one kind of puzzle. What would you take? Because that's, that's, you know, for what's going to sustain your interest for a long period of time. And then the second question, I guess, would be, I'm only going to let you do one puzzle. And that's it. I'm never going to let you do another puzzle after that. You can just choose one. What would you choose? I am a word nerd at heart. And so I loved exploring the logic puzzles and the and the mechanical puzzles. But yeah, I, I still think that my first love is my true love. So crosswords. I might choose a, a cryptic on the desert island because it takes so much longer. It's true. It is. I mean, the crosswords uh, I'm able to do in a reasonable amount of time, but the cryptics will just occupy me. Uh, you know, hopefully I'll, I'll still have time to forage for food, but yeah, it would, it would keep me busy. Do you read Rex Parker? You know, what's funny is, uh, I don't think he's sometimes, in the book. No, he, and for those who don't know him, he is, uh, he writes a daily column about the New York times crossword and it's very funny, but very snarky it's and he is very snarky. high high standards and he does not like a lot of them so it's funny because a friend of mine told me his favorite thing to do is he doesn't read rex park here regularly but when he loves a puzzle in the new york times he will go to rex parker to see why it's terrible to see why <laughs> rex parker hates it so much so he's kind of a hate solver uh so i i did i did consider putting him in because he he is uh funny but uh, I felt I had enough anti-crossword uh, voices, especially with the New York Times uh, early editorials. Well, you call him snarky. I think he's a little bit cranky. Um, mm. and that, uh, so I'll do a, a, a Sunday New York Times, which I now get in Israel. I think we get him through the Jerusalem Post. I can't remember where. I think that's where we got him. And um, I have to mention, your book opens. Actually, let's digress for one second. We're Tell us how your book opens, one down. My, well, my book opens uh, because a few years ago, about seven years ago now, I was the answer to a clue in the New York Times crossword puzzle. It was author A.J. Blank, and the answer was Jacobs. It was one down, and, and I was ecstatic, of course. As a word nerd, this was the highlight of my life. It, my wedding was pretty good, but this, <laughs> this was the holy grail. And then my brother-in-law emailed me, and he did congratulate me, so I want to get that out there. But he also pointed out that this was the Saturday New York Times crossword book. And as we mentioned, that is the hardest of the week, harder than Sunday. And all of the answers are totally obscure. You're not supposed to know them. So his point was, this is not a compliment. <laughs> this is proof in black and white that you're a nobody then no one knows who you are. And so I, I was, uh, you know, crushed and went on a little emotional roller coaster. Uh, and the happy ending, though, is that I told that story uh, uh, on a podcast. And it happened that one of the New York Times crossword makers was listening and decided to save me and put me in a Tuesday puzzle, which is not a Monday, but I will certainly take a Tuesday because I don't belong there. And he was very clear that I did not really belong there. He had to make the crossing clues incredibly easy to compensate. But uh, because I, that's where Biden or Lady Gaga, that's where they, they are in the Tuesday, not me. Uh, but that was truly the highlight of my life. So I, I start the, the book with that anecdote. So I just, I, I mentioned that partly because we just did a, uh, my wife and I just did a, a Sunday puzzle. I don't know when it actually came out. I don't know whether the, I don't pay any attention to whether the Jerusalem Post runs them, you know, soon or later. But it had a clue where the answer was uh, economist Emily Blank, and that's Emily Oster, uh, past econ talk guest. So now at least two econ talk guests, maybe more, have been featured <laughs> in the New York Times. And I hate I hate to tell you this, AJ, it was a Sunday, uh, which is a pretty good place to be. You're, maybe someday, you, you know, with this book, you, you'll 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 get to that <laughs> that level. But when I do a Sunday that I find um, intellectually offensive because the theme is not up to what I consider the standards of the New York Times Sunday Crosser puzzle. I go to Rex Parker and he always backs me up. <laughs> God bless Do you me. remember one in particular? Not I'm not going to say it. I will not, re I will not repeat it, but he, his view, the reason I say he's a little bit cranky is that you know, I've noticed that in recent years, 
he's increasingly dissatisfied. Now, it could be they're just not as good as they used to be, or they've Will Shorts, the editor who's you feature the book, which is fabulous because we all want to know something about Will Shorts. If you care about crossword puzzles or puzzles generally, that he's gotten you know either sloppy or careless or to whatever, and maybe he's under pressure. Who knows? Uh, but anyway, I. I Rex Parker is not happy with the the, the quality of the Sunday. I have not noticed a decline in quality. I I but I do notice that the quality varies from day to day, and that's because it is an art form. Yeah, it is. I, I really gained respect for the crossword makers because it is, uh, and some of the themes are so clever, and some are sort of phoned in. Uh, so I, uh, but again, it is it is an art form. And, uh, and that is why originally I was going to write puzzles for the book. Uh, I was going to write 20 original puzzles, but I realized I was so out of my depth that if I really wanted high quality puzzles, I, I couldn't just do it from scratch. I had to collaborate with someone who had been doing it for years. And I found this great puzzle maker, Greg Pliska. So, uh, it gave, that was one of the big lessons was just how much respect I gained for the art of making puzzles. So I, I want to close with um, another harsh judgment on my part. I mean, obviously, I, this, oh, before I do, I have to mention, when you mentioned the chess as a metaphor for life, of course, Adam Smith in The Theory of Moral Sentiments describes the man as system as one who would move the pieces of society around as if they were members of a uh, uh, pieces on a chessboard without a motion of their own. And I think that Smithian metaphor is a very, very powerful way to think about public policy that goes against what is natural to us. And, and it's a, I, I love that paragraph. Um, I just butchered it more or less, but you get the idea. We'll put a quote, we'll put a link up to it. But uh, to continue to this uh, brutal cross-examination, which I'm, I'm putting you through, AJ, um, your book is... Uh, it's it's entitled uh let's get this right the puzzler one man's quest to solve the most baffling puzzles ever from crosswords to jigsaws to the meaning of life i think you're a little thin on the meaning of life you know i think a lot of people are going to pick up that book and go like where's this it shouldn't just get a chapter i should get a large section no it's a big issue what do you got for me there well I do think I address the meaning of life, uh, and I think, and this may sound flippant, but I actually do believe it deeply, which is that the meaning of life is partly in the search for the meaning of life. It's about curiosity, and as you know, you're a fan of curiosity, I'm a fan of curiosity, but that to me, we may never find the meaning of life, and in fact, I don't think we we will. I think it's one of those impossible puzzles or mysteries as as you refer to them but for me the joy the the meaning what gives my life meaning is is trying and searching uh so again that arrow in between the question mark and the exclamation point so that now i just gave away the spoil now i feel like it's a spoiler no one's going to buy the book but that to me is uh is the uh partly what the meaning of life is. My guest today has been A.J. Jacobs. His book is The Puzzler. A.J., thanks for being part of EconTalk. My pleasure. Thank you. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.